0: Well, if you brought with you a Bible, if you want to turn with me to Psalm chapter 115. and If you did not bring one, there should be one in a seat in front of you. And if you don't have one at home, we'd love for you to take that home with you. If you're a guest here at Providence, we're thrilled that you've joined us. And if you're in, uh, at home or in the amphitheater or some other room, uh, we just want to welcome you. We're glad that you've joined us as well. Um, psalm 115 is um, is an amazing psalm about a man who who feels brokenness in the culture in which he lives and uh, and he's begging God to move in such a way that uh, that God would be glorified. And so it's a um, really uh, unique text for our morning. Um, uh, as we come out of our uh, John study for ten weeks this summer, what I want to do is to uh, show you uh, where we're going with the series called "The Life of Worship." Okay, there's a there's a little slide up here that you'll see sort of uh, where we've been last week uh, was the unshakable worth of God. And what we'll do this morning is just look at the unstoppable work of God. Now, why these two are so critically important is because worship, by definition, is our joyful and sacrificial response to the worth and work of God. When we see who God is and we see what God is doing and our heart is led to respond to him in appropriate ways, God calls that worship. And so we want to look at these two things very, very, very closely. And in fact, what we'll do is for the rest of our series, you'll keep hearing the words worth and work because that's the foundation of everything else. But then what we're going to do is we're going to take eight different practical areas of life where you and I spend a lot of time. And I want to show you how God has intended to use each one of those areas, things like marriage or parenting or friendship or work or rest, that God intended for those things to be a platform for you to worship him and to help other people to worship him. And so what we want to do today, though, is to look at this unstoppable work of God. Now, most of us in this room, I hope it's not the case for you right now, but most of us have had a job in our life that we hated, um, uh, a, a, a job that 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 we didn't get excited to go and do, a job maybe that we felt constrained or pressured or uh, you know that we had to do it, and um, i had I had one of those jobs it was sort of self inflicted but but I had one of those jobs i don 't have it now by the way okay but <laughs> but, but, but i had it was uh, i uh, had a job in high school for a summer on a melon farm, and uh, uh, I would have quit literally every single day and it 's not because i uh, uh, like the dirt like I actually kind of like yard work and things like that, and so i uh, actually love a farm but uh, but I would have quit because uh, it was so difficult. Um, but, but, um, but my dad, who found me the job when I got into some trouble, uh, wouldn't let me quit. Right? And so uh, now most of you are going, well, I wonder what he did. And uh, I'll tell you in about a year. Okay? So, so literally all summer long, I worked at this job uh, for a very, very shrewd, demanding farmer who knew that I was stuck. He knew that my dad was over me, constraining me to be there. And so no matter what he asked me to do today, he knew that I'd be showing up tomorrow. And I hated that job. And what you need to know and what I want you to know is this. When we talk about the work of God is God never works like this. He is never constrained. He is never pressured or coerced by external pressure. He's never constrained by anything other than the pleasure of his will to bring glory to his name and good to his people. And so I'm gonna read the first three verses here in a minute, but before I do, I wanna pray for us, okay? So join me. Father in heaven, we believe that this word is from you, and so we pray, God, that you would help us to bend our life over what we learn. Would you transform us, and would you give us belief? Would you help us to understand, and would you help us to have the courage to apply this to our life? We love you, and we need you, and I ask for help now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 115, the first three verses says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. And he does all that he pleases. Literally, he works all that he pleases. Now, if you're like me. Um, in that you enjoy a sermon that begins with a text and then the pastor stays within that text and then he's gonna finish with that text and then I can read that text later in the day or in the week with some notes and I can find where everything found within that one particular text, this sermon is gonna be really frustrating to you, okay? (laughs) Just confess that up front, okay? What I wanna show you, why I read this is to read specifically this context of a man who's calling for brokenness I'll give more context to this passage, but what I wanna show you is starting from the very, very end of the book and then moving to the beginning of the book and then showing what God is doing throughout. I wanna show you one truth today of what God is working on, what he's doing. And I wanna show you it through the pages of all of scripture. And that one truth is this. is driven by love. God is working to create a people who enjoy his grace And extend his glory. That this mission, this work that he's doing is first and foremost, it is driven, it is motivated by love within himself. That for the sake of his steadfast love, he's doing this. What he's doing is seeking to create a people on this earth, among other peoples who are on this earth, where those people would enjoy his grace and would extend his glory. This is what we see throughout the pages of scripture. And the first thing that I need to answer is this, is how is this love? How is it love for someone, anyone, to seek glory for themselves? You see, if my life work was to get you to glorify me, that would be absolutely unloving. You see, not only would it be arrogant on my part to do my entire work in order to get you to think much of me, But it would also be an unloving thing because if you were successful and you sought to give me glory, it would not please you. It would not satisfy you. I don't have the ability or the capacity to satisfy your soul or your heart. And so seeking glory for yourself in terms of me, it would be kind of like burying trash in my yard and then having you come over and promising that there's treasure that if you would dig long enough that you would find it. You might dig, but you would find that I'm not able to deliver, that I'm not worthy of your worship and I'm not, but he is. You see, he is worthy. He is the ultimate treasure that can satisfy our souls. So it is perfect love for God to literally create a people and then invite that people to love and worship him with all of their lives because he is worthy. He is the treasure that when you find him, he is able to satisfy our heart. And so for God to do the most loving thing he can do It's an invitation to come to him, to acknowledge him, to enjoy him, to admire him, to worship him. So we have to ask the question, Okay, then what is God doing in the world? If it's loving for him to do this, then what exactly is he doing? And what I want to do is I want to go to the back of the book. Okay, the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation, we find a picture. Now, most of us, we look at the world in which we live. We look at the people all around us. We see the brokenness, and it looks like a puzzle that's not been put together. You have some pieces that are, that are turned over, and so you just have the brown. You know, I don't even know what that's supposed to be. You have some pieces that have been put together, and you can see some of the beauty of what was really designed and what God is really building. And so you look up in the corner, and there's a moon, or you look over here, and there's a sunset. and You think, wow, that's wonderful, but everything still looks so undone. And the beautiful thing about God is he told us in Revelation what it's going to look like when he's done working. It's sort of like having the box top. That before you start the puzzle, you can look and go, oh, this is what it's going to be like. And what we're told will be the completion of his work is this, is that Jesus Christ, he is going to take the throne. After all enemies have been totally put down and there will be a people that has been built And that people will be there. And it says that they will sing a new song singing, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and people and nation. This is what he's going to accomplish. This will happen one day. And so the first thing God has to do in order for that to take place is he has to create these puzzle pieces. So you go to the beginning of the book, in the first chapter of the Bible, there in Genesis, verse 27, it says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. That God created us with a capacity to know him personally. You see, people, at least for a short time, they enjoyed unbroken joy and peace and worship as we lived in the garden with God according to his great design. He said, this is how life is going to work. And at that place, there was no tension. There was no strife in relationships. Work work found contentment and pleasure in it. There was satisfaction in the work of our hands. There was peace in relationships. And one of the main reasons that all this took place is because the worship acted sort of like an oxygen tube that went from our soul to God. And because that relationship was not severed, is that oxygen could flow freely. But then all of a sudden, we're told in the Bible that we sinned. That God said, this is what you can do, and this is what you cannot do. And we looked at what he said we cannot do, and we said, we will do it. Whether you like it or not, we'll do it. And the Bible calls that sin. It was rebellion against God. And all of a sudden, that relationship with God was severed, and with it, the oxygen tube going to our soul called worship, was also severed. Now, most of us know what it's like to be held underwater against our will. I had a brother, and so we used to play and wrestle in the pool. And sometimes, right, one of us would hold the other one down a little too long. And most of us know what that's like, that panic that turns into flailing, that turns into, I'm going to punch you if you keep me down here. And this is exactly what happens spiritually. When our relationship with God is severed and we're distanced from God, and that worship tube of oxygen to our soul is also severed. All of a sudden, we start flailing. And this is what we see in our culture. We see brokenness all around, don't we? We start treating people in ways that if we were truly satisfied in the Lord, we wouldn't, we wouldn't, we wouldn't treat people that way. We wouldn't lie the way that we do. We wouldn't hate people simply because they have more or less pigment in their skin. And all of this takes place because of sin at all Comes to this thing called brokenness. And what's amazing is this is such a far cry, is it not, from Revelation chapter five, verse eight, where you have a people who are there gathered together. It's multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-language, multinational. They're all together and they're loving one another perfectly while they're loving imperfectly. This is what God is doing. But there in the garden, things were all broken. And we still see the fragments of brokenness all around us even today. You see, instead of crushing us there in the garden, God promised to send a Messiah, a promised one. He'd be born of woman and he would crush the head of evil and restore us back into a right relationship with God. And the manner in which God did this is remarkable to me. It's it's remarkably patient to me. God chose to go to a man who was worshiping stones, carved rock, and said, I'm going to do it with you. I'm going to build a people out of you. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to be a special people on the earth, and one of your descendants will be the savior of the world. All families will be blessed through him. And so what God did was God, in the midst of all this chaos, God patiently chose to create a people among lots of people who would enjoy God's grace and seek to extend his glory. He gave them a job description. He says, you shall be to me a treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what God did, what he intended with this people called Israel, Abraham's entire uh, uh, line, is is, he says, I'm going to give you even a book. And if you follow this in obedience and worship to me, you're going to live a holy life. You'll be set apart. You're going to live differently. You'll know how to treat people. Even in chaos, all around moral chaos and relational chaos, you'll know how to treat people. And as a result of that, people will come to you and say, why are you so different? And then he says, and at that point, you'll be a kingdom of priest for me. What's a priest do? A priest does not bring God to the people. It brings broken people to God. That when the broken people would come to Israel who are living a holy life, enjoying his grace, seeking to extend his glory, they'd say, oh, well, it has actually nothing to do with us. Let me introduce you to the God of the universe who's personal and omnipotent and omnipresent and wise and loving and compassionate and kind. He's gracious and he'll forgive you of your sin if you repent. In Israel, by and large, failed they started worshiping idols they rejected god's word they were not a holy people they were not a kingdom of priests they didn't introduce people to to god they 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 lived for themselves but what's remarkable is that there was always a remnant that was faithful of people that were believing in god and who were seeking to worship him and and acknowledge him and admire him and when they started to pray they started to pray as though god's name were stapled to the people That that as the people would be helped, God would be glorified. And as the people would be embarrassed, the name of God would not be glorified. And so we find prayers throughout the Old Testament, such as in Psalm chapter 79, verse 9. It says, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of whose name? Your name. For your name. And deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. You see, this is the basis of Psalm 115. Psalm 115. In Psalm fifteen, Psalm one fifteen, the writer's looking around and he sees brokenness all around. And he doesn't say, "For our glory, would you would you come and help us?" He says, "For your glory, for your glory alone, would you come for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness that it would be known among all nations? Would you come and work in us?" The nations are asking, "Where is your God?" Because they look at us. And we're in shambles. Would you move? Would you act? Would you fulfill the promise that you made to Abraham to send the one? Who would redeem us, reconcile us, and restore us to God. In Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, born of a woman, to redeem a people who would enjoy God's grace and extend his glory. The Bible calls this the gospel. It means good news. It's the good news that Jesus Christ came to earth and he died on a cross after living a righteous life to pay the penalty for our sin, that he was buried and three days later, he rose from the dead. And the good news is that for those of us who believe in Christ and repent of our sin, he forgives us and he adopts us into his church where we can recover and pursue God's design for what life should look like. See, the amazing thing about the gospel is it's not that God just says, "Okay, here's the new rules. Go and do them. He says, this is righteousness. This this is purity. This is holiness. But instead of go and do them, he says, I'm going to place my own spirit within you. In Ephesians chapter 3 says that the spirit of God who lives in us gives us the power to live a righteous life. The exact same power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead. There's new power to live a new kind of life so that we would be a kingdom of priests. So that we would proclaim the excellencies of Christ who pulled us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, friends, nothing but the gospel can heal our land. Nothing but the gospel can break down racial hostility. Nothing but the gospel can help us see humanity not as a color, but as an image bearer of God. Nothing but the gospel can incline our hearts to love justice and righteousness and mercy and peace and equity. But Revelation tells us the gospel is going to prevail. His work is unstoppable. There will be a people and it will be a multiracial, multiethnic people there. And we will love one another perfectly and we will love him perfectly. Perfectly. He will build a holy people through the power of the gospel, a people who live to enjoy God's grace and extend his glory. This is what God is doing. This is his work. And if you're paying attention to what worship is, worship is a response, a joyful, sacrificial response to leverage all of our life to the worth and work of God. Well, if this is true and if this is what he's doing, then the second point must also be true for us, his people. And that is driven by love, our love for him. We are to worship God by enjoying his grace and extending his glory. In other words, if we're the people that he's building, let's be that people. Let's enjoy his grace and seek to extend his glory. You see, the psalmist knew that unlike the idols That God would act for the sake of his love and faithfulness. He continues to talk about these idols in verses four through seven. He says they're silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they can't speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. And feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. This is the futility of idolatry as we create it. And then we sit down and we worship it. And it can't do anything. And so the psalmist here is looking. He's looking at people that are looking at Israel and they're bowing down to their idols and they're saying, well, where is your God? And so what the psalmist does is he pleads and he says, God is going to do this. So he's calling upon the faithful remnant in Israel to be faithful, to be faithful and to trust, trust that he's going to send the one, trust that he's going to send his Messiah, You see, for us, though, Providence, you have to understand that he's already done this. He's already done this. He's accomplished what he said he would do. So our trust is not in hope that he will do it. Our trust is that he did it. And now for therefore, forever, we're going to worship him for it by leveraging every area of our life to enjoy his grace and extend his glory to people who will enjoy his grace and extend his glory. You see, every single one of us with kids, we, we, we ask questions. I know I have. And God's kind of convicted me of this. If this is what he's doing, that I need to really anchor my life and my kids' lives to what he's doing. I ask my boys as they've grown older about career aspirations. What do you want to do when you grow up? And it's interesting, what we ask there is basically, what career do you want to have while you're here on the earth before you're not here on the earth? And so the career is the end goal of that question. And I've started to think through and asking a different question, and that is, sons, when you look at the passions and interests that God has given you, the abilities that God has given you, how do you intend in, a, in the form of a career to leverage those things to be about this mission? This is the only mission that is unstoppable, If you live or your children live for anything other than this mission, that mission will fail. Jesus is putting all of his sovereign energy and authority to do this. And so as a church family, we must do this. So three applications. The first is let's pray for Christ to be glorified. Let's pray for Christ to be glorified. Why start here? Because Jesus started here. Think about it for a second. His disciples are walking around and they're watching him pray. Unlike anyone they've ever prayed and seen pray. And so they walk up to him and they say, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? And he says, And he sits down to teach him how to pray. And he says, this is how you ought to pray. Our Father in heaven, what? Hallowed be your name. Does anyone know what Hallowed means? It means to be seen as holy. To be seen as admirable, to be recognized. What he's saying is this. The first thing you ought to give your life praying for is that God would be admired in your life and by your family and by your church and by your nation and world to give your prayer energy first to say, God, would you do whatever is necessary to see that your name is admired and recognized and loved in this world? So as a church body, this is where we pray. God, would you hallow your name in and through us? The second thing is let's share the gospel and disciple those who believe. You see, each one of us have the opportunity to do just this. And I wanna encourage you, right? We encourage often to pray for opportunities and wisdom and boldness. And I wanna ask you, not only just be on lookout this week, but I want to encourage you, make it a prayer point. God, would you help me share the gospel or have a spiritual conversation with one person this week? This week. You say, well, how would that happen? Well, I don't always know how it happens. I can tell you how it happened this last week for me. So I was at the Y. I was walking out of the Y. There's a TV in the men's locker room, and there was a lot of brokenness that was being shown and on this tv and there's a guy sitting there and he's just watching it i stand next to him i'm just watching it as well and he looks over he looks at me he goes this world is messed up isn't it i said it is messed up i said but do you know it wasn't always that way and all of a sudden you're on god's design god didn't make it this way and god did something in order to help us get out of this mess You see, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, it says this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Now listen, as believers in Jesus Christ, I beg you, do not live your whole life as a believer on this earth and not do the last thing he told you to do. No amount of fear Justifies disobedience. We've got to be telling people who don't know. Not out of fear. But because God may God wants them to be part of the community that's going to be worshiping him forever. So we've got to be telling people. And then the third thing is. Let's take and send the gospel where there is no gospel. You see, the reality is not everyone lives here. You're not going to run into everybody. There's a lot of places in the world that simply do not have a church. They don't have the gospel light. They don't have a voice that someone's saying, this is the gospel. And you can believe in this and be forgiven. If that's the case, then we have to go. We have to send people who will go. And I want to encourage you to consider over the next two or three years, would you be willing to go on a mission trip with Providence? This year, we're gonna take somewhere around 275 people. I would love, literally, for every adult to go on a mission trip in the next five years. There's no reason you can't. Maybe, right? For nearly all of us, there's no reason. But you know what? There's, there's, there's so many amazing things that are taking place that I just wanna share with you before we take say the Lord's Supper that only take place because you've been willing not only to go, but also to give to help people who will go. I've got to tell you some of these things. It's remarkable. We've partnered with five church planters in four cities in America. They're Portland, they're in Toronto, they're in Philadelphia, and there's two in Boston. We have a team right now of college students in Portland helping that church to go out and share the gospel in a city that's very unchurched. We just had a team get back from Boston where two church planters were there. It's a remarkable thing, all these cities of all these people, and most of them do not know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Something else that we're doing because of your generosity is we're starting a church planning residency. What that looks like is in February, we hope to introduce you to our church planning resident. He's going to be with us for one year until the next missions festival when we hope to send him out. Where he's going to be planning a church in one of the cities in the Northeast that's heavily populated with people who do not have a church. It's an amazing thing, but it's not a cheap thing. And, 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 and because of your generosity, that's possible. But you know, there's also places all around the world. And over the last several years, we've built relationships and sustained relationships with some Bible schools, some, some, some seminaries, right? That are training not only believers, but are training believers to be leaders, pastors, church planters, Two of the schools that we, as a church family, have just partnered with—they've uh, at times parts of the school have either been blown up or uh, simply because of opposition to them being there. We, as a church family, provided funds multiple times in order to sustain the work, so that more local indigenous people can be educated, can understand theology, and learn how to preach and share the gospel. And you know what? Now they're starting to graduate people. And so we've adopted, as a church family, seven church planters, indigenous. They know the culture. They know the language right where they're at. They're a part of the people. And we have the opportunity now to introduce them to you. And so I want to uh, just uh, name some pictures. In the nation of Jordan, Bossum and Sandy will be planting a church. In the nation of Ukraine, right? Ian and his wife, Gabriella will be there. The next one is Serbia. And in Serbia... Mia that's a hard one. His wife is even harder for me for some reason. Zdenka, right, are planting a church. In Romania, there's a young man named Marcus who's graduating. and He'll be planting a church. And then in India, we have two church planters, one in the north and one in the south. In the north, Nagarej and his wife Prima. And then in the south, there's a young man named Kamlish. And then the last one is in Indonesia, And their roughness is there to plant a church where there is no church. Now, this is amazing things, what I'm showing you right now. I hope you know that. And they could not take place without generosity. And that leads me to one last thing before we take the Lord's Supper. You see, nothing we do should be detached from anything else that we do. Everything is about this mission, including our buildings. And you guys know, three weeks ago, that we voted as a church family. To, to expand this worship center and to finish the east parking lot here at Providence. It's part of something called Vision 220, where we're seeking to leverage for two years the resources that God has given to us in order to prepare for 20 years of ministry. And as we voted yes on that, I say again that the sacrifice necessary to improve this site only makes sense if we will plan to invite more people to come and hear the gospel, that we will welcome them when they get here, that we will equip them up And then we will send people out with the gospel all over the world. That's what we're about. That's what we're going to do. You see, as part of that, I've urged us to do four things, four ways that we can lean in during this year as a church family, as construction begins. The parking lot, you'll probably see dust starting to fly around at the end of this month. It's going to start quick, okay? That'll be the first part. There's four ways that we can lean in, right? Right? We can pray, we can give, we can excel in being hospital, in particular to visitors. And then the last one was to lean in towards each other, to be committed to each other as a body. What this means is I want to ask you not to take a sabbatical from Providence until construction is complete. Right? Be committed to the body. The body needs you right now, right now. Part of the reason that we need the body, the whole body is because there's visitors that will continue to come and there's gonna be front doors that'll literally be closed that we won't be able to walk through. It'll be confusing. It'll be dirty. It'll be uncomfortable for a time. We're doing all of that for a reason though. You have to remember that reason. We need to be praying, but we also need to be giving. And there in your little handout, there's, there's a little tear off card. And between now and the end of this month, I'd simply wanna ask you to be praying. Literally, it's between you and the Lord. It would help us to know if and what you plan to give, because by knowing what you plan to give over the next year between now and June of 2017, it's going to help us to know how to plan and how much debt, if any, that we need to take on. Hopefully none. Because of the incredible generosity of people that have been giving over the last 18 months, by year end, there should be, we're on target to have about $4.5 million towards this project, which leaves $3.25 million. We're willing to borrow that, but we hope we don't. And so what I want to do is simply ask you, would you consider giving towards this? There's two sides to the card, and I want to just walk through each of those two sides. The first is for those who have been giving, whose commitment runs up at the end of this year. I would just ask you to pray to the Lord, and if he tells you to do so, then do so. Would you consider extending your commitment Six additional months until the end of construction in June of 2017. And the other side of the card is for those who either were not here at the time when we first committed or who were here but chose not to give or not to pledge. And I would simply ask you, would you consider at this point in time to give for one year out of your um, goods that God has so generously given to you uh, and, and to extend your giving? How you would do that, this is almost the same card that we did 18 months ago. It starts, and the first line is simply, what did you give in the last year? If you say, well, I'm not giving anything, then you can put zero there, okay? If it's $100, if it's $1,000, I don't know what it is, right? You just put zero. Well, the next line is, okay, over the next year, well, what, what would you be willing to give? What would God tell you to give that's over and above what you gave this year? And you put that in there. The third line is for any one-time gift, right? Let's just say you got a bunch of George Foreman grills you want to sell, right? And each one is going to be $20, you got five of them, okay? You can put $100 there, okay? Sort of a joke, but that's, right? And then the fourth is just the total, okay? You can turn these in over the next three weeks in the plates as they're passed at Next Steps, or you can go online and you can fill this whole thing out online. Why I say that in a message like this is for this reason. If we ever get to the point to where we do not see the connection of anything that we are doing to the mission of God, then we have totally lost focus. If this is not tied to this mission, then we are failing. We've got to get the message out, enjoying him and extending his glory. You see, God is going to accomplish his mission. And one day we will, as a people of God, we will stand before his throne arm in arm, all colors, all cultures, and we're going to be worshiping him. What he's done is he's given us a way for us to anticipate that day in the Lord's Supper. So for those that will be serving us, if you would come forward during this time, you see, Jesus gave us this supper, the Lord's Supper. It involves two elements. There's bread and there's a cup. Each are symbolic One of the body of Christ that was broken and the other of the blood of Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. To take of these elements is to say that I am trusting Jesus Christ as my savior. That his blood and his blood alone is what I am relying on for the forgiveness of my sin. So I would ask that if you are here and you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone, then we as a church family welcome you to partake after examining your heart But if you do not know Christ, we would ask you to respectfully allow these things to pass, for to take them is to love them. Okay? So on that night that he was betrayed, he took these elements and he gave thanks. And so if you would, would you bow as we pray together, Bob?